0: Speaking of our time in the Word, turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. In the early 1800s, a young English candle maker named William Proctor immigrated to the United States. Looking to start a career, he settled in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. There he began his business as a candle maker, and he met a charming young lady named Olivia Norris. The two of them fell in love, and in 1833, they were married. This meant that he would now be working practically alongside of his in-laws, which for some people would be a very unpleasant prospect. But for uh, Mr. Proctor, it turned out to be pretty advantageous. You see, Olivia's sister, Elizabeth Ann, had married a man named James Gamble, another immigrant from Ireland. He was a soap maker. Well, since soap makers and candle makers both use some of the same resources in their business, their father-in-law suggested, hey, the two of you should go into business with one another. That way you're not competing with each other. And so they did, and they formed their new company called Procter & Gamble. And the two of them put in, both put in about 3000 of their own dollars into this new company, and they signed a charter and, and went into business with one another. Well... As the years progressed, it, when we get into the Civil War era, Procter & Gamble became the, so, the soap supplier for the Union Army. And the Union Army was using 1,000 cases of soap a day to keep their soldiers clean because disease would travel quickly through the camp if you didn't keep clean. And so their company expanded and, and grew tremendously. In 2014, Procter & Gamble brought in about 83 billion dollars in revenue. And if you've ever used Tide soap to wash your clothes or if you've ever cleaned your dishes with Dawn dish soap or if you've ever brushed your teeth with Crest toothpaste, you can thank Procter and Gamble for those products. Here's the point though. And many other stories could be told in American history of great partnerships where people came together, worked together, to produce amazing things. Here's just one example. Two men united together, partners, to create a business that would go on to create a, a jobs and boost the economy. And the question is, as the Church of Jesus Christ, it's our mission not to go out and make a profit Not to start a business, not to uh, bring in revenue. But our job, our mission is to declare and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only news that can save to a lost and dying world. But I think there is something to be learned from the story of Procter & Gamble. And that is the element of partnership. That two people came together to succeed. And I think as the church we need the same mentality. There's a togetherness When it comes to this job, this mission of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We're going to start a study this morning of the book of Philippians. And for the next several months, we will be studying this little New Testament letter together. It's one I've been looking forward to preaching through. Because Philippians is just a marvelous letter, isn't it? Uh, In fact, if you're somebody who highlights or... Uh, underlines in your bible my guess is if you turn to philippians there's going to be marks all over because there's so many wonderful verses so many great thoughts and teachings here in this little letter and the thing that really is remarkable to me and i can never really choose a favorite book of the bible you know it's always kind of shifting but i know that philippians would be up there right in the top 10 at least And one of the reasons I I enjoy Philippians so much, and and probably you do too, is that it's such a positive, upbeat letter. Unlike 1 Corinthians or maybe some other New Testament letters where it's a lot of correction and a lot of rebuke, Philippians is just a, a ray of sunshine, a bright spot. One author states, the letter to the Philippians has been called the tenderest of all of Paul's letters. It is also the most delightful to read. It brims over with expressions of praise, confidence, and rejoicing. Gordon Fee, the New Testament commentator, believes that Philippians should be identified as a friendship letter. A letter of friendship from Paul to the Philippian church. In fact, as we study, and we'll we'll make note of this again, but Philippians really is a thank you letter from Paul. The Philippian church heard of Paul's imprisonment, they heard of his struggles, and they'd sent him several, probably financial gifts, but it may have been other things as well. They had supported him. They had, in a sense, partnered with Paul in his ministry. Now, as we come to the book of Philippians, one of the things we're going to ask as we start, and we're only going to look at the first two verses this morning. But one of the questions we ask is, what's this book all about? What's the theme? And Philippians, perhaps more than any other book that I know of, has more suggestions of what the theme might be than any other. Uh, for instance, many say that the theme of Philippians is joy. And certainly you see that written all over this little book. In fact, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And so the theme of joy is certainly strong in Philippians. I've also however, heard it, it said that Maybe humility is the theme of Philippians. Paul has a lot to say about humility in this little book. Or perhaps unity is the theme. And again, there's much to be said about unity here. All of these are themes. But what holds it all together? What do I see as the theme of Philippians? Well, I think it's reflected in the title for our series. It is Striving Together for the Gospel. Essentially, that's what Paul is doing when he writes Philippians. He's saying, thank you for partnering with me, with with coming together to share in the ministry I have of making the gospel known. And this theme is is prominent throughout the book. And, And you notice that I highlighted the word together in red, because that seems to be a big idea here. Is that, yes, we are to be striving for the gospel But not just as lone wolves, not just as one man going out and pioneering a work. It's the combined effort of God's people. Paul, as a missionary, needed the Philippian church. He needed those supporters who stood behind him, who blessed him, supported him, and encouraged him. This matter of striving together is the idea of partnership. Just as we saw with Procter & Gamble and on all those many partners throughout history. Paul needs the Philippians. He needs support. He needs this matter of together. And so do we. If we're to be the church, we have to be striving together for the sake of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. There is a unity that is required here. Uh, Let me just survey this in the book of Philippians. Look with me, if you will, if you have the book open. Listen to all these references to the gospel and notice a couple of things about them. Let's look at them. Verse 1, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 5. Paul says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, he says that I am in chains because of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12 he says, I want you to know, brethren, that these things have happened to me, have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 17, he says, but the, the, because of these chains, he says, I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 27, he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Just a few moments later in that verse is where we get our theme. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then if you look over in chapter 2, verse 22, Paul talks about his friend Timothy. And of Timothy, he says, he has proven character. And he is to me a son who has served with me in the gospel. Then if you'll turn over to chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is speaking to two women in the the Philippian church. Euodia and Syntyche. And here's what he says about them. He says, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. They labored with me. Now, in all of those references, you'll notice that the gospel is central. You will also notice that there's a a togetherness here. That they're laboring with me. Uh, Timothy is serving with me in the gospel. Uh, You have fellowshiped with me in the gospel. Look at verse 5. In fact, that word fellowship in verse 5 of chapter 1, could be rendered partnership. It it has the idea of, of someone partnering with someone in a business. The two people have a common goal, and so they pool their resources and they go into business with one another in order to achieve that goal. That's the idea. Is that we are coming together, striving together, for the sake of making the gospel known. So this morning is just going to be an introduction to the book of Philippians. And we're going to do it by looking at the first two verses, which give us some background. And that's where we need to start. That's where we always start when we begin a new book of the Bible is get some background. Who wrote it? Uh, Who's the audience? Who's it written to? Uh, What's the background and the setting for the events and the story to take place? So let me wrap it around three thoughts. This is actually still introduction. So this is not the outline you have in your bulletin. But I gave you a little space up on top so you can fill these in if you want. We begin by seeing in Philippians 1, 1 and 2, the servants of Christ. The servants of Christ are mentioned. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Then verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice it starts off much like other New Testament letters. This, was, this is how you wrote letters in the first century AD. You would begin by identifying yourself, then identifying your audience, and then you would have some kind of formal greeting like grace and peace to you. Uh, so Paul follows a fairly standard uh, introductory formula here. But he mentions himself and Timothy. Uh, these two people are both familiar to us. If you know anything about the New Testament, Paul is perhaps one of the most important figures in the early church. And we will get a little bit of background history uh, of Paul, biographical information he gives us in the letter to the Philippians. But we know that he started off as a Pharisee. He was rabidly opposed to the church and rabidly opposed to Christ. And so Paul begins... Not as a friend of the church, but an enemy, an active enemy of it. And we know the story. On the road to Damascus, Paul is met by the Lord Jesus Christ. And his life is turned around dramatically. Instead of being a persecutor, he becomes a preacher of the gospel. And Paul was used by the Lord to start dozens of churches throughout Asia Minor and Greece and beyond. And the Philippian church was one of those churches that he helped found. On his second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, along with Luke and possibly Timothy, came to Philippi and preached the gospel there and founded this church. So we see Paul, but also Timothy. Now Timothy is often found not, not very far away from Paul, right? He, he kind of is living in the shadow of Paul in a sense kind of his, his protege, if you will, and Paul the mentor. Timothy had come under the influence of Paul's ministry in Lystra and Derby when he was serving there. And yes, he had been brought up to know the Old Testament scriptures by his mother and his grandmother, but it seems that Paul was something of a father to young Timothy, that he was his spiritual father. It's interesting that Timothy's actual father is really nowhere in the scene. So Paul steps into that void in his life. Now, Timothy would have been a person that the Philippian church would have known, either by reputation, but I already mentioned it's possible that he was there in Philippi. He's not mentioned in Acts as being present, but he does show up shortly after. So he may have actually been around when Paul founded the Philippian church. We don't know. But here it says, Paul and Timothy, indicating that they are the authors. Now, Paul being the the actual author of Philippians, Timothy may have acted as a scribe. Perhaps he was the one who was uh, writing it down as Paul dictated. Nevertheless, the two of them are called bondservants of Jesus Christ. This is interesting to me because Paul doesn't say, "Ah, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does that in a lot of his letters, doesn't he? But here, he sees no need to remind them of his authoritative role. Uh, Paul's not writing to them as, I'm I'm an apostle, you need to listen to what I have to say. Instead, he approaches them and says, "Uh, just like you, I'm a bondservant of Christ. He's establishing that, that they are, in fact, on the same plane. They are partners. It's not the relationship of a superior to an inferior, but we are together in this. We are in fellowship for the same purpose, for the same cause. Now, now the word he uses here, bondservants, or servants as some translations say, is the Greek word doulos. It really means a slave. This was not just a, a, a household, you know, somebody who was hired as a servant, but someone who was a slave, bought and owned. And the Roman Empire was filled with slaves, so they perfectly understood what this meant. David Garland, a commentator, points out, Identifying himself and Timothy as slaves drives home the point that they are not ministry volunteers, but they are in bondage to Christ who owns the title deed of their lives. Hmm, what an interesting perspective on ministry and life. Does God own the title deed of your life? That you would say, I'm a slave. He owns me. He is my master. That's how Paul looked at himself. That's how he describes himself here. Uh, They were not free men. They belonged to Christ. And as such, their master's wish was their command. We see these two servants of Christ. And by the way, this, in a way, foreshadows what's to come in the book of Philippians. Because later on, Paul will say to this church, let the mind of Christ be in you. What was the mind of Christ? He humbled himself, became a man, and took on the form of a servant. See, Christ became a servant for us. Paul says, Timothy and I are just servants. In other words, they get it. They they have that mind of Christ. That's going to be an important dynamic in this letter. So we see these servants of the Lord, these servants of Christ. But also, I want you to see that this this letter is addressed to a significant city. A significant city. You notice this, verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. In Philippi. Philippi was a proud city. It, It sits in kind of uh, Macedonia, almost on the edge of Greece there, uh, just across the, the Dardanelles from what is modern-day Turkey. And I, I should have pulled up a map here. But, uh, if you look it up in, your, in the back of your Bible, generally there's a map, and it'll show you where Philippi is. But this was the first church to be founded in Macedonia, if you recall, back in the book of Acts. Paul was looking at different ways to go and there was this vision he was given of a man from Macedonia beckoning, come this way. And so Philippi was the initial visit, the initial spot, but it was a proud city. Uh, for centuries, it had been kind of you know, a forgotten town, nothing special. But then, in 42 BC, a, a large battle was fought just outside of Philippi, Octavian, Octavian, And Mark Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius. Now, if you ever had to read Julius Caesar, the play by William Shakespeare, like I did when I was in high school, uh, those names might sound familiar to you. Uh, Julius Caesar was the Roman emperor, the Caesar. And in 44 BC, he was assassinated. And Brutus and Cassius were behind it. In fact, if you might remember from Shakespeare's play, the, the famous words, As Julius Caesar is dying, he says, et tu, Brute? You too, Brutus? You have betrayed me? Well, this led to basically what was a civil war. And Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian would eventually become Caesar Augustus. But those two fighting against Brutus and Cassius, the rebel faction. And they were finally defeated at the Battle of Philippi. And this city gained notoriety. In fact, after these events... Caesar Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony, which was a, a big deal. It meant that everyone that lived in Philippi became an automatic Roman citizen, which was a very coveted role, a coveted position to have. As a Roman citizen, you would have all kinds of rights and uh, privileges that other people wouldn't. And so they, they considered this a great honor. And they were very proud of their Roman citizenship and their their Roman colony status. That will, by the way, play a role in how Paul speaks to them in the book of Philippians. But the city was located what's called the Ignatian Way, a major trade route. So it became a large metropolitan area. It was here that Paul went. And we can read about in Acts chapter 16, Paul establishes a church in Philippi. And it was not an easy thing to do. There was hardship. There was trouble. We'll we'll look at that passage in just a moment. But finally, I also want us to see not only the servants of Christ, a significant city, but also a set apart congregation. A set apart congregation. Look in verse one. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. To all the saints. That that term saints means to be set apart, to be called out or called to be holy. And he's not talking there of of a special class of Christians, but all believers. All believers are saints, called out to be God's people. So this little church, founded in Philippi, and by the way, notice one more thing in verse 1. He says, to all the saints. This is addressed not to a few in the church, but to the whole church. Why? Together. Together. Striving together for the gospel. There's this strong sense that Paul is promoting and encouraging unity. And he's speaking to all. In fact, look through the verse and you'll see at least five or six times in chapter one, Paul speaks to them as all. To I, I thank God for all of you, he says. And so on. So he's bringing them together. And then he mentions also bishops and deacons. So this church had grown to the point where they had established leadership within their church. Again, that may prove to be significant later on as we study. So we see the author, the destination, the recipients. But let me get to what is the theme of our message. And, and we may have mentioned this already or shown this already. But it, it should be our focus this morning that our, our mission as a church is to be striving together for the gospel. Our mission should be the very thing that I think Paul wrote to the Philippians about. That we should be united on this purpose of reaching others to proclaim the good news. I want to point out with the time we have left, four characteristics of a church that's striving together for the gospel. And to do this, we'll have to look at some more history on the Philippian church but also I want to survey a little bit of what's in this book of Philippians number one a church striving together for the gospel is made up of forgiven sinners it's made up of forgiven sinners in other words to be a church that's striving together for the gospel we have to have first experienced the gospel how else can we share it and take it to to those around us to our neighbors experienced it It's so fascinating to think about churches and how diverse they are. Churches are kind of like people in a way in the sense that every one of us is unique. And I was down at a church in North Carolina last week for this conference we were at, and it's a very different church than here. In size, in terms of structure, in terms of staff, in terms of what they do. There's so many differences. It's like comparing apples to oranges. And yet, when you get down to it, we really exist for the same purpose. Their goal is our goal, which is to make the gospel known. Now, we all look a little bit different. But we're united in that purpose. And here, this, this church was unique, to say the least. The Philippian church was made up of forgiven sinners, and they're as different as they could possibly be. Uh, go to Acts chapter 16, if you will. We're going to spend a few moments here, okay? I'm going to go quickly through this because there's a lot to talk about, and I can't talk about all of it. Paul goes to Philippi. In fact, let's read it in verse 11. Acts 16, 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we came. Uh, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and next day to Neapolis. And from there... Philippi. Now, Philippi was about 10 miles inland from Neapolis, which was the port city. So from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony or a Roman colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. We sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she, had, she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So in this Philippian church, in the makeup of it, we first see the strong business woman. She's so the first character who believes, the first one who is joined to this Philippian church. Now, the, the circumstances of Paul's ministry in Philippi is interesting. I already mentioned the, the vision of the man from Macedonia. Well, they come to Philippi. This is their first real stop in Macedonia. And we see a deviation from Paul's typical custom. You remember what Paul usually do, does on his missionary journeys? He comes to a city and he goes to the synagogue, right? And there he finds the Jewish population and preaches Christ to them because he has an obvious open door with them. They they believe the same Old Testament scriptures. he, He himself is a Jew. He doesn't do that in Philippi. Why not? Well, the assumption is there was no synagogue in Philippi. Again, this was a largely Roman city. And... According to Jewish custom, you needed 10 families, or at least 10 heads of household, 10 men were required to start a synagogue. So if you didn't have 10 Jewish men in a town, you couldn't have a synagogue. So it seems that there wasn't a large Jewish population in Philippi. In fact, we don't see any men anywhere. Paul, however, does find out that there's a prayer meeting going on down by the river, just outside of the walls of the city. And so hearing this, they say, well, let's, let's go there. There's no synagogue. Let's start there. And so they go down in verse 13 to the river on the Sabbath day. And there was a prayer being made there. And then he says, we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. No men mentioned just women. So so there's this little women's Bible study that's meeting down by the river. And, uh, Lydia is part of it. Maybe she was even a leader of this Bible study and prayer meeting, um, Again, Lydia doesn't even appear to have been Jewish herself. It's more likely that she was a God-fearer. In fact, that's what it says of her. She worshipped the Lord, or worshipped God. So it doesn't seem that she was Jewish, but had at least come to believe that the God of Israel was the true God. So there they are, down by the river, studying Exodus, or Hosea, or whatever, and probably wondering would love to have somebody come along and teach us, you know, what some of this means. You know, sometimes that's the case. You get in a Bible study and it's like you start getting into things and think, whoa, you know, we're in over our heads here a little bit. Well, maybe that's how they felt. Here's the thing. There's this women's Bible study and Paul goes down there. By the way, let me just a little aside here. This is a problem all too common in the church today as well, right? That... That simple question, where are the men? Because study after study, survey after survey shows that in churches across America, women far outnumber men in churches. Uh, One study said that uh, roughly 61% of the church in America is female and only 39% male. And that's the average congregation. Women are 20 to 25% more likely to attend weekly worship services than are men. And as such, women have often stepped up in their families even to be the spiritual leaders. So just reading about this meeting down by the river, I kept thinking to myself, you know, where are the men? And I think there's a strong call even, even in the scriptures that as men, men need to stand up and lead in their homes to, to focus upon God. And it's, it's not about your career or or even... Providing primarily, but being a spiritual influence, a spiritual leader. But that's, that's secondary to the text here. They meet a certain woman named Lydia, the Bible says. Now, she is from Thyatira, a city, by the way, that's mentioned in the first few chapters of Revelation. But she was a seller of purple. Now, purple dye was extremely expensive and very rare. And so this was uh, quite a business she was involved with. She was probably very wealthy from selling purple. Uh, it may even be a case that she owned a home in Thyatira and Philippi. So she was a very wealthy individual. Now, it doesn't mention a husband here. Perhaps she was a widow. Um, perhaps she was just a single woman. And, and that's rare in New Testament times to find a single businesswoman who's a successful, but it's not unheard of. So here she is, and fairly wealthy, uh, pretty prosperous in this trade. She was essentially a merchant. Uh, if we think of uh, Lydia today, she might have been, you know, the CEO of Prada or something like that. You know, some some fashion, and that's what she was involved in—the fashion industry, essentially. And but very wealthy, well-to-do. Well, she hears the message that Paul preaches down at this message or at this uh, meeting. And the Bible is very clear here. It says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And let me just say, that is how any one of us, all of us here, have believed the good news. Is at some point, if you're you're a follower of Jesus, at some point, the Lord opened your heart. Because here's the thing. Your heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart will always lead you away from the Lord. So something has to happen dramatically. The Lord has to open your heart to change you from the inside if you are to be a follower of Christ. So what we see here is really conversion taking place. That God is opening her heart to believe and to hear the good news of the gospel. Unaided and unchanged, our hearts would always lead us to further rebellion and deeper sin. But here's the thing. Praise God, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Can I also just say, praise the Lord, that there was a time when he opened my heart to hear and believe the good news. And I pray that you can rejoice in that same experience because you can say, yeah, there was a time when God opened my heart. And I would have never come to Jesus, but that he sought me and opened my heart to hear that good news. And so Lydia is led to the Lord. And by the way, that's also one of the greatest experiences I think that you can have as a Christian is to be able to watch somebody else have their heart opened. If you ever had that privilege to lead someone to the Lord, that moment when the light bulbs come on and they get it and the the new life of Christ just floods into that person's soul, that's an exciting, exciting thing to watch somebody's heart open like Lydia was here. And so she is... Changed from within and she becomes the first member of this church verse 15 She's baptized and she invites the missionaries into her home to stay And so here's the first convert of this church the first forgiven sinner to enter this this congregation is this strong businesswoman, but let's keep moving. There's a second individual. That's very very different We see a slave girl next Now it happened verse 16 as we were went to the prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and us, cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. She did this for many days, but Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So as Paul is ministering in Philippi, there's this slave girl who is basically treated like an animal. She's exploited by these masters. She is afflicted by this demonic possession, but it, it produces a profit for them because she's able to tell fortunes and be able to you know make predictions and so on like this. And so they're going around basically treating her like a... Uh, circus freak show and making money off of it. And what a sad thing here. This this girl, you know, may, maybe was no older than a teenager, is being, is oppressed both by this demon and by these men who are making a profit off of her. What a sad case. And you know what? Something's not mentioned here. It says nothing about her family, her parents, whether she had any siblings, the fact is, their master, her master didn't care. She was just property to them. But here's this precious young lady who is in a desperately horrible situation. Well, she's following Paul and Silas around and proclaiming the truth, right? She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Now, we see the same thing, by the way, in the Gospels where Jesus is sometimes called out. The demons will say, here, this one is the son of man, the son of God. But Jesus silences them. And Paul does the same thing here. He casts the demon out of her. Um, Why? I mean, after all, what she's saying is true. Well, here's the thing. It's advertising, but from the wrong source. Uh, We're in an election year. I guess I should say election cycle, because the, the election cycles are way more than a year anymore. But uh, you know, we're, we're getting close to the election just a week and a half or so away. One of the things on the election or a campaign trail, uh, candidates are always looking for endorsements. You know, companies and businesses, celebrities, politicians, they're always endorsing. You know, we endorse this candidate, this candidate. Well, most of the time, that's something that they seek after. But what if you, sometimes an endorsement is all, not always a good thing. Uh, in fact, sometimes an endorsement may make people want to stay away from you. For instance, how would you feel about a candidate who was endorsed by the American Communist Party? Or how would you feel about a candidate who was endorsed by Planned Parenthood or some other organization? You know, so some people might think that's a very good thing. But here, Paul is getting an endorsement from a demon. That's, that's not where you want your endorsements to come from. And so he turns and he casts this demon out. Now, here's the thing. It never says that this young girl becomes a member of the church. But I'm going to suggest that if, if here's this, this young woman who is oppressed by a demon and, and been mistreated, abused. And now she suddenly is free. The light shines into her life. And finally, she can think clearly and... She is, for the first time in a long time, free from this oppression. You know, I I think that the church would have wrapped their arms around this person. Totally the opposite of Lydia, though, right? Lydia, strong, powerful businesswoman. She's got it all together. She has her own estate. You know, she's planning for the future. Meanwhile, this girl, whose life is in shambles, are now sitting next to one another in a worship service. Encouraging one another. Folks, this is what the church is meant to be. I got to go quick, though. There's one more that I want to mention. After this incident, Paul gets in trouble. This woman's, this uh, slave girl's owners are not too happy about this. So they have Paul and Silas arrested, beaten, and thrown in prison. And you probably remember this story. At midnight, Paul and Silas are in prison, in shackles, bloody and bruised from their beatings. And what are they doing? Singing hymns, praying to the Lord, rejoicing. Hmm, not exactly what you would expect. Well, that very night, the Lord sends an earthquake. Paul and the prisoners are released from their chains. But instead of fleeing for their lives, they stay there. And the Philippian jailer wakes up and, thinking that they have fled, prepares to kill himself. That's when Paul steps in and says, don't kill yourself, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the Philippian jailer asks the, the most point-blank, best question a person can ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he's cut to the heart. And it would be an interesting study to go back and look at this Philippian jailer, what brings him to this point. But they give a simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So now we have this Seasoned jailer added to our motley crew of Philippian believers. A diverse church. But this is the kind of church that, if we're going to be a church striving together for the gospel, this is what it's going to be. A lot of diverse people. uh, Not a lot in common, maybe on a, a personal level. But in Christ, we have the most important thing in common. We can be together. We can be partners in making the gospel known because we've experienced the gospel. It's changed our lives. We've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we work together. That's the objective. That's the goal. Let me move through these others a little faster. So a church striving together for the gospel is made up of forgiven sinners. But secondly, it is a church that is united in purpose. United in purpose. I already mentioned unity is one of the themes in the book of Philippians. So if we're going to be striving together for something, we've got to be united. And again, I mentioned, uh, we highlighted the word red on our graphic for the series. Together is in red because we're, we're highlighting this is not something we do by ourselves, but something that we join together, united in that purpose. Uh, go ahead and go back to Philippians. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 5, which says, Paul is thanking them for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I already mentioned that word means partnership coming alongside and and serving together with a common goal that 's what this is unity in purpose here 's the thing' is a lot of churches don 't have a unity of purpose. Uh, you ask around and find out, well, what's, what's the church about? What's the church to you? Well, it's a place where I come a couple of times a week. And, um, you know, it's, I, I get some encouragement. And you probably get a variety of answers. My guess is not a lot of churches would have one singular answer. We're here to be partners together, working together to make the gospel known through our lives and through our church. And what happens when, when this purpose gets lost is you have a church that's not united. A church that's bickering amongst itself about stuff that doesn't matter, right? I mean, how do you think that there's battles over the color of the carpet in a church or, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, we, where we put the Christmas tree or these types of questions, these types of arguments are because we are not united in purpose. We're not striving together for that gospel. Uh. This was part of what Paul's addressing here. In fact, flash forward to Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It seems that the unity of the Philippian church was starting to show some cracks And it's not that the church was breaking apart or splitting at this point, but Paul starts to address it even now when it's just cracks. He says, listen, be of the same mind, be of the same accord, get on the same page with one another. This is what it is to be a church that's striving together for the gospel. It's being united in this purpose of making the gospel known. There's a lot more we could say about that, but let me move on. A church striving together for the gospel also embraces humble servanthood. Again, I highlighted this at the beginning that Paul calls himself a bond servant of Christ. Then chapter two, which is the centerpiece of this whole Philippian letter is this great hymn or uh, almost like a poem about the humiliation of Christ, that Christ humbled himself and became a servant. Look at verse six of chapter two, who that is Jesus being in the form of God did not consider his, uh, at robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bond servant. So, if we're to be a church striving together for the gospel, we have to embrace this idea of humble servanthood. It's not who's above who, it's that we're all serving one another. Uh, the church that doesn't get this matter of hum- humble servanthood is going to be a place where everyone's trying to get above each other. Instead of trying to see how high we can go, we should be trying to see how low we can go. We should instead be trying to outdo one another in humble service. It's like, oh, you're going to serve me? Well, let, let me serve you. you know, you're going to hold the door for me? Well, let me hold your uh, plate there for you. you know, we're we're hem- embracing this mindset of serving one another with humility. Humility. Finally, I want to point out this last one. A church striving together for the gospel is a church filled with joy. There is great joy that comes when we are working together for this united purpose of making the gospel known. And you knew I couldn't talk about Philippians without talking about joy. Now, I don't think that it's the main theme per se, but it is certainly strongly here in the book of Philippians. Church striving together for the gospel is filled with joy. It's a joy that comes from the gospel itself. After all, joy will be found in the hearts of those who know Christ as their Savior. But it's also a joy in striving together for that message. Where the gospel is believed and embraced, There, joy will be found. And that's why Philippians is one of the most upbeat and positive of Paul's letters. Yeah, he has some stuff about false teachers in here, but overwhelmingly he's saying... We're working together. We're partners in the gospel. And that produces such joy because we know the gospel. We walk in it. And and imagine this. This is all while Paul is in jail that he's writing this. One author states, It hardly seems possible that Paul is writing from prison with chains holding him. His words seem to come from a light heart. It's evident that the soul of this great apostle is free. There's an atmosphere of joy even from the prison. There'll be some important lessons to learn about joy and circumstances as we study Philippians together. Chapter 4, verse 4 of Philippians says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. And that is the, the heart of the apostle as he's in chains, filled with joy. Why? Because he has Christ. He has Christ. E. Stanley Jones, a missionary to India, once said, when I met Jesus Christ, I felt that I, I felt as if I had swallowed sunshine. Is there a sense of joy because you know Christ? Does talking about the gospel bring a smile to your face? You know, it should. It should. In fact, if, if the gospel doesn't bring a smile to your face, there might be a problem with your face or maybe with your heart. Maybe you've not ever received that good news before. But if you have, how can we not be joyful knowing that Jesus has loved us and died for us and he has promised us heaven ahead? Not to mention, when we serve with one another in this task to make the gospel known, it really does bring a sense of joy. My encouragement would be try it. If you say, I really wish I had more joy in my life. Why not try serving together, partnering for the cause of making the gospel known? Here's the point, and I want to close with this. The the matter of proclaiming the gospel is not a one-man show. It takes all of us united together to make the gospel known. And so the book of Philippians is Paul's thank-you letter to this church, which partnered with him from the first day until this time. How would you describe our church? Would you describe this as a place where uh, we have a good time? Where we have some good food pretty often? Would you describe it as a place where you feel uh, like it's home? But let me just ask, would would you describe this as a place where we are working together, embracing this idea of of partnering for the sake of making the gospel known? And I hope as we study Philippians, more and more we'll be able to say, yes, that's what I see in our church. Striving together for the gospel.